Matthew 18. I'm sorry, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came, the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for recording these, these precious sayings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And we look to you this morning that you would teach us uh, Teach us uh, your word, O Lord. Instruct us from your word, O Lord. And we don't just simply ask that we would leave here with more information. We ask, O Lord, that we would truly leave here with changed hearts. That, Lord, you would shape us and mold us as we sit under the authority of your word and as we look to you with the eye of faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Over the last three or four weeks, we've been studying, basically, Jesus' response to uh, the, uh, uh, his, his opponent's challenge to his authority, if you will. And uh, we have seen that these leaders, they're refusing to embrace the truth, and instead they're suppressing the truth in favor of their own agendas. And it's uh, quite amazing. I mean, Jesus had attracted uh, large crowds, uh, who had brought their sick and had brought their crippled uh, to uh, Jesus to be healed. And there are commentators who have speculated and suggested that during those three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, he practically eradicated disease uh, in Palestine during that per period of time. All that someone had to do was hear Jesus was in the area. And if you were sick, that's where you were at. If you knew anyone that was sick, that's where you were. And he was healing. And we also have recorded for us an event where Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And he does it again with a crowd, not quite the size, but still 4,000 men plus women and children. And I, as I've said many times before, I think it's interesting that his enemies... They don't, they're, they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to show him as a farce. They're trying to show him as an intruder. But one thing that they never do is they never discredit his miracles. You ever notice that? 
You'd think that's what they would want to try to do. They, they try to show that he's the, the, the source of the power is from evil. They, they point to, to the, the devil himself as the source of his power, but they don't discredit his miracles. Isn't that interesting? Why don't they discredit his miracles? Because they knew that they had taken place. There was no way for them to discredit his, his miracles. And they also knew that the people knew. You know, try to imagine, you know, having a cousin that has never moved in his life. He's been a, a quadriplegic for his entire life. And uh, here he is present, uh, worshiping and singing and uh, uh, dancing and jumping up and down uh, because of the healing ministry of Christ. Uh, you could hardly discredit that, couldn't you? You could hardly discredit that. They knew that he had given sight to the blind. They knew that he had cleansed lepers. They knew that he had raised the dead. And in fact, in, in chapter 21, it really begins with what we call the triumphal entry. The church has historically called Jesus' entry down out of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. And those large crowds that gathered to praise Jesus, to, to sing those portions of of the psalm to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They came out because they had heard of his raising of Lazarus. He had, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they were unable uh, to discredit uh, his miracles. They knew that he had performed these miracles, uh, yet they still refused to submit to his authority. In their minds, what are they doing? They're suppressing the truth. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. He says in one, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Then he goes on to say in the next verse, For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that all people are without excuse. Now, what does all that mean? Paul's not the easiest one to understand, is he? <laughs> Especially when you're sitting there listening to somebody read it. Okay, what's that mean? Well, what Paul is basically saying here is that as unbelievers, it's not that we don't know that God exists. We all know that God exists. We just suppress the truth about that. And we function as if God doesn't exist. Uh, and of course we, we can see that. That's, that's clearly the case. That's clearly what's going on. Uh, you know, the, the grandeur of creation, I mean, it's complexity. You look out at creation. It's complexity. It's sophistication the vastness and power of the universe, the, the precision of the planets and the stars and the way, they, the way they, they're all moving about. It's very clear that, that somebody has made these things. Someone is keeping this all functioning. It's very clear uh, that there is a God. We can clearly see that from what God has made. And Paul reminds us of this. He's not teaching us something that we don't already know. He's reminding us of what we already do know. And he's making an observation about the world that, that, that what, it's not, what's going on here is not that people don't know that uh, God exists. What's going on is that we are suppressing that truth. We're suppressing it. And uh, the religious leaders who are opposing Jesus are not denying the existence of God. In fact, they're very religious folks. They're, they're, they're church folks. 
but what they uh, are doing, nevertheless, is they're suppressing the truth about God. It's quite amazing that they have God standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ, yet they're opposing Him. Why? They're suppressing that truth. They're just refusing to submit to that truth. They're, what else could Jesus have done to prove His authority uh, to them? And the same thing happens today as folks reject the gospel. You know, uh, the whole time I was studying at Geneva College and later at, uh, at RPTS, I used to do a lot of pulpit supply work. And uh, Tammy and I really enjoyed that because, you know, you got to travel around to all these different places in the valley. You got to meet all kinds of folks, uh, many folks that were faithful in the Lord. And you got to see what God's doing in so many different churches. Uh, it was really a lot of fun, and I would speak for vacationing pastors, or I would speak uh, in churches that were between pastors. They were uh, looking for a pastor, and it, it, was, it really was, a, all in all, it was a really good time. We learned an awful lot through uh, that period of time, but uh, on many occasions, uh, as I preached the gospel around the valley, you can clearly see when you're preaching, and you, if you like to make eye contact, as I like to do, uh, you can clearly see uh, when someone doesn't really like what you've got to say. Um, it's pretty kind of obvious to everyone. And uh, uh, there was a lot of that going on. Uh, I would think to myself afterwards, what was wrong with what I said? It was the gospel. You know, I'm still studying. I'm still trying to figure this out. Well, what's going on is they're rejecting the gospel. It's the same sin that we, that we find here in, in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22. And many of these folks that were rejecting the gospel were in positions of leadership in these respective churches. It's the same, same. It's the same, same. The world loves inspiring messages. And the world is generally okay with moral lessons. But uh, the gospel, unless the God has conditioned your heart with grace, we don't want anything to do with the gospel. And let's be really careful that we don't mix the three together. You know, I can tell by talking, you know, just, that just being at a, a funeral this week and, and visiting with people and talking with people, I, I, I don't think that people in their minds really know the difference between the gospel and inspiring message and a moral lesson. Moral lessons go over fine. You know, here's Jesus, you know, here he is, and uh, he just, uh, he just, he's telling us to turn, he turns the other cheek, you know, so the, more, the lesson here is turn the other cheek. You know, next time something happens, just be passive and turn the other cheek. People are fine with that. You know, here's David, and uh, here's this big giant, and David's got courage, and he stands up and he slays the giant, and when the giants in your life come, then you need to stand up, and the, the world will be fine with that. You preach Christ crucified. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's when you start seeing facial expressions change. We could do inspirational messages, you know. Uh, what's the, the Pinocchio commercial? Have you seen the Pinocchio commercial? What I see here is a vast untapped talent. And then the, the nose goes, you know, and it's uh-oh, you know, that kind of stuff. Only without the nose business, you know. People like that. But the gospel, Christ crucified, you know, God is good, we're bad. Jesus comes to save us. The best of us can look to the cross to see their condition. 
The very best of us is so bad that Jesus, if he only had to die for the very best of us, would still be on the cross doing exactly the same thing that he had to do for all of us? Mm, that's a different story. But that's the power of God for salvation. The moral lessons do not create the righteousness that God requires. Inspiring messages, that's, that's not the gospel. That's not going to change us. That's not going to make us more like Christ. Jesus is preaching the gospel, and he's being rejected because people are just refusing the truth. Now, what we have here this morning, the parable of the wedding banquet, really is the last of, of three parables that Jesus is giving to these folks that are suppressing the truth. They, they're suppressing the truth. They're, they're unwilling to look at the truth. So what is Jesus doing? He's giving them the truth. And here he gives us a picture. And the first picture that he paints is the picture of a feast. If you look to verses 1 and 2 of our text, you see that Jesus is sharing another parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. What he's doing here with these words, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. He's painting a picture. It's easier to see a picture sometimes of truth. If we can, an illustration sometimes makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? You know, when you're reading a book and then there's this little diagram, a little illustration, sometimes it can really help you see things. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us an illustration. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast that a king put on for his son. And I, you know, I, I think before we go any further, we ought to stop and just say a word here about the word feast. Uh, you know, as I was preparing for this message and I was thinking about that word, I was thinking, you know, in our culture, the word feast falls completely flat. We're not, I mean, there's exceptions to the rule and some of us are hungry. That's, that's no, I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, but most of us, are not getting into the refrigerator to find something to eat. We're getting in the refrigerator to find something we're in the mood to eat. We feast, by the world standards, we feast every day. And we can throw a big feast really anytime we want. I think everyone in this room right now could, if you wanted to, you could throw a feast. You could schedule it and say, okay, Friday I'm going to have family over and we're going to have a feast. That wasn't the case to Jesus' original audience. And I think we need to go back and we need to see that for a second. Imagine life without a refrigerator or a freezer. You know, or a, really a stove or a microwave for that matter. Um, and imagine if food was really scarce. The idea of feast would awaken uh, in your heart an idea of a joyous celebration, wouldn't it? Uh, whereas it really falls flat, I think, in our culture. And this imagery of a wedding feast that Jesus is pointing to is the same imagery that the Apostle John uses in the 19th chapter of Revelation, which I just want to read a couple verses uh, to you that we read earlier. You know, here is his words. He says, let us rejoice and exalt and give, give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. See, there's the wedding. And his bride has made herself ready. The bride is the church. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. We'll look at that next week. Uh, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, and listen to these words. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper 
of the Lamb. There's one addition here that we should mention for a moment. Uh, in Jesus' parable, he's talking about a wedding feast. John says the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's adding the idea of Lamb. He's bringing in the, the whole imagery of the uh, Passover Lamb, if you will, which was a type of the sacrifice of Christ. That, that Lamb was a, a type or a shadow, if you will. It taught the people of God the whole idea of an innocent party going in place of the guilty and the need of an innocent party going in place of the guilty. And it pointed to Jesus, who was the Lamb with a capital L, the innocent party going in place of the guilty. Now, when, when we start putting that together, we end up with a picture that is almost unspeakable. It's, it's literally an unspeakable state of blessing that's being put forth here before us. The idea is that the church is marching towards, inch by inch, day by day, hour by hour, to this grand event where the table is going to be ready and all of God's people are going to be around this table and Christ is going to be at the head. Isn't that amazing? And all of the guests, everyone who has faith in Christ is, is going to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember, some of you remember a long time ago when we were studying Ephesians. We made a lot of noise about that. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavy, heavenly places. What spiritual blessings are you going to have? You're going to have every one of them. We're going to receive all of the privileges of sons and daughters of God, all the privileges of the, of the church membership, all of the blessings of the new covenant, uh, the removal of guilt, the righteousness of Christ, peace of mind, promises of the gospel, access to the Father, access to the throne of grace, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, hope of eternal life, a new nature, a new heart, perfect righteousness. This list could go on and on and on. Who will receive that? Everyone around the table. Nobody's going to get skipped over. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what do we say? So we see we have a feast. It's a blessed state that's beyond our ability to comprehend. I've really fought hard and long how to communicate this this morning. We also see there's an invitation in our, in our text, an invitation. In fact, much of the parable involves the invitation, doesn't it? I'd say the majority of the parable really is concerning the invitation. And, and we should expect that because why? I mean, uh, why is Jesus giving the parable? He's forcing his adversary, he's forcing his opponents to consider the truth that they're suppressing, right? So it makes perfect sense why he would spend so much time on the invitation, doesn't it? Because they're refusing the invitation. He, you know, all weddings have an invitation. I mean, we have, to, 
we have to be informed that a wedding is coming, an invitation is sent to the gifts. And uh, initially the king sends his servants to invite the guests. There's, a, there's a, a, an initial invitation. Uh, how do they respond? They don't come. Uh, they're uninterested, uh, indifferent. Uh, it's important that we see the word uh, that they will not come, that they would not come. That, that's a really important word there, that they would not come. Uh, in verse 3, you see at the very end of verse 3, they would not come. It doesn't say that they cannot come. It says that they would not come. And that's the issue. I mean, the invitation is sound out. It's, it's not that we cannot come. It's that, it's that we will not come unaided by God's grace. We will not come. They will not come. And then in verse 4, the king sweetens the invitation with a preview of the menu. You know, he says, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Come to the wedding feast. You see his urge? He's urging. He's, he's he, you know, he, he's sending his servants out to, uh, to passionately uh, call people to come to this, to this glorious feast. You know, we can look at the care here that the king has taken to honor his son and bless his guests with, and it's really, it's amazing, isn't it? All of the choicest morsels are on the menu. Nothing is spared. What's going to be on the table? It's going to be that which is wholesome to the soul, that which is truly nourishing to the body and the soul. It enlarges the heart, enlarges the mind, that which will make us more and more like Christ and give us a greater capacity to enjoy Christ, a greater capacity to enjoy righteousness. That's what's going to be served. Please come. Please come. But they paid no attention to his gracious invitation. They found no value in what the king had done. They were more interested in their careers. They're more interested in their hobbies. They're more interested in all of the things that God had given them to be interested in the one who, who is giving. The picture really reveals our blindness, doesn't it? Our blindness to true treasure. How our hearts are so prone to cling to houses and cars and boats and trucks. And uh, we're like little kids. Uh, we cling to this stuff when, when a real treasure is being offered to us. We spend all of our time laboring for this stuff when real treasure is being offered. Here's real true treasure. Left to ourself, we, you know, we don't want anything to do with it. We'd rather play in the mud. We're blinded by the fading attraction of these toys. It's quite clear uh, from what we're seeing here. Jesus is, is illustrating the gospel call, isn't he? That's the invitation. It's the gospel. And the servants, the king's servants, they're the prophets and the ministers, the pastors, and really everyone who God calls to publish the gospel call. That's who, who they are. You know, we're told that they really have a rough go. The servants of the king have really a rough go as, as, as they go out with this great news. Come to this wedding feast. And as they explain the wedding feast, as they explain it, they're being received with indifference. And in some cases, they're being received with hostility. And in some cases, they're even being killed. It's quite amazing when we think about it this way. 
That's the case with John the Baptist, isn't it? He was killed as he followed his call to publish the good news. And Jesus, and within a couple of days of saying these things, he's going to be crucified. Greatest sin that ever took place under the sun, the greatest crime that ever would be committed or ever could be committed is going to be committed in just a couple of days at the hands of his opponents. And uh, Jesus indicates this in his parable. It's a really hard word in the parable, actually, if you look at uh, verse 7. In fact, if we back up to verse 6, back up to verse 5, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Verse 7, the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. There's a prophetic element to the parable. Uh, we, I, I've tried to labor to show Jesus' graciousness and handling his opponents. But last week I started to show that there's a line in the sand. You remember that? There's, you know, if we're in the business of opposing Jesus, we're entertaining a very dangerous business. And it's dangerous because, first of all, we don't know that we're ever going to get another opportunity to repent. But every time we oppose Jesus, we inch closer to this line. And the danger is we don't really know where the line is. It's known only to God. But it is indeed possible to cross that line. And after that line is crossed, the only thing left for you is not a gracious invitation, but certain judgment. And that's where these folks are. It, it will make your hair stand up on your arm as you think about it and the hair stand up on the back of your neck as you think about it. The king was angry and he sent his servants to destroy those murderers and burn their city. You know, when we get to Matthew 24, we're going to see where Jesus begins warning his people. He says, listen, judgment's coming. And when you hear about this judgment that's coming, don't run to the city. Run out of the city. What's Jesus referring to? If you're familiar with Matthew 24, he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. We're going to study that here in a few weeks. The greatest crime that was ever committed under the sun will be committed in a couple of days. And God will meet that crime. He will meet that crime with His judgment. He actually destroys the Roman army just in a few decades after this. Come and destroy Jerusalem. And they burn the city with fire. Jesus warns folks. He says, when you see this happening, flee. Flee from Judea. Flee. Don't do what you would normally do. What we would normally do is we would run into the city and we would seek refuge within the city walls. That's what we would normally have done. Jesus says, don't do that. Flee. Leave everything behind. Don't turn around and get anything. Flee when you see this happening. And many, many people believed. Many people believed Jesus and they were spared. But many felt that his words were indifferent and, and unrelevant and untrustworthy. Am I going to believe Jesus when I got these big strong walls here? I'm going to go behind these big strong walls. Jesus says, don't go behind those big strong walls. See, the danger of not following Jesus. They went behind those big strong walls and those big strong walls were brought right down on top of them. 
It's a very sobering picture that Jesus is painting for us here. He issues a second invitation. It's refused. Praise be to God that many people received that second invitation and came, came in saving faith. But many, practically uh, many, uh, refused that invitation. So Jesus is, or the king issues a third invitation, and it's to go forth to the rest of the world. Uh, verse 9, go out to the road and invite anyone who will come, both good and bad. And this has been the work of the church ever since. I mean, to go throughout the world and gather um, to gather all those who will come. I mean, this is, this is the mission statement of Tri-State Community Church. You know, I decided to put that on the front of the bulletin now. You'll see it's gathering a family who loves and serves God through Jesus Christ and leads others in kind. That's the mission statement. That's the calling. Uh, it's not the complete summation of what we're called to do, but it's, it's, you know, it's a good portion of the charge that we're called to do. Um, so here we have a gospel invitation to a great wedding feast. Let's not let it, let's not let it slip by. Um, and over the course of my ministry, I've seen so many people treat the gospel with indifference and contempt and even scorn. And I know some of you are very, uh, very vocal about your faith and very active in sharing your faith. And you've seen the same thing, haven't you? Let's not let that invitation go by. But I wanna leave us with really one last thought. I mean, for the rest of us, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus. You know, what, what, does this, what, what could this bear upon us? I mean, there's many things that could be said, but the application I'd like to leave you with is this. All of us wrestle with wandering hearts. Am I right on that? Am I the only one who, who, who wrestles with that? I mean, we can be following Jesus ever so closely and then it just seems like gradually over time, next thing we know, it's, if we're really honest about our hearts, they're following something else. And praise be to God that He wakes us up and He brings us back over. Uh, he brings us back over. I mean, all kinds of things can lead us astray. All kinds of things can tug at our hearts. Well, I would submit to you that one of the greatest antidotes uh, for that very problem is to think about this wedding feast. That's why I've spent so much time developing it this morning. Think about that wedding supper where Jesus is at the head of the table. Think about this glorious parable that Jesus is telling us. Think about the words that uh, Jesus gave to John in chapter 19 of the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're all around this table. Why are we around this table? Oh, wait, you just look up at the head of the table. You see, you see the one who's at the head of the table? You see how glorious He is? You see how magnificent He is? You see how holy He is? He loved each one of us so much that once upon a time He hung on a cross for us. He hung and died on a cross for us. And that just brings our heart right back, doesn't it? Don't you really want to serve Him right now? We'll, sur we'll surrender anything to Him right now, won't we? But we go out those doors and our hearts get pulled in all these different directions. We've got to keep our mind fixed on the true reality. This world is passing. It's temporary. But that supper, that wedding feast, it's scheduled and it's on time. 
One day we will sit there in His glorious presence. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's difficult to speak of these things and not even break down into tears. These are such wonderful and powerful truths, O oh Lord. We so thank you that you've given us eyes to see these things and ears to hear these things. And out of that thanksgiving and out of that joy, Lord, we, we ask that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to, to give more eyes and more ears that can see, to open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, O oh Lord, that no one would let this invitation slip by this glorious invitation to this supper that you have scheduled and planned. So, O oh Lord, we pray. Pray, O oh Lord, for your saving grace to come upon us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.